This podcast is supported by Morgan Stanley, whose Thoughts on the Market podcast brings you concise takes on the markets and the events that are moving them. It's like a personal briefing with Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief investment officer, and his colleagues. Backed by the Morgan Stanley Research Team, they share insights and perspectives on current events and what these events could mean for markets and the world economy. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Search for Thoughts on the Market in your podcast app. Hi, Briefing listeners. Mark here. Behind the Money, our narrative podcast, is doing a special series about ESG. That stands for environmental, social, and governance issues and the trillions flowing into investments and corporations focused on sustainability. The latest episode tells the story of how a small hedge fund went up against one of America's most storied corporations over climate change and won. Enjoy the episode here, and you can subscribe to Behind the Money in your podcast feed of choice by searching for the show. So picture this, the financial markets, not as a trading floor, but as a boxing ring. In one corner is a tiny investment fund. In the other is a behemoth, the oil giant ExxonMobil. Exxon is a $250 billion heavyweight. The fund weighs in at just $240 million. But the tiny fund is not intimidated. It has the crowd on its side. It keeps punching. It wants to knock Exxon into shape. It wants the oil giant to factor climate change into its business plans. What are its chances, do you reckon? That was the question earlier this year, when an obscure hedge fund went up against Exxon. A David and Goliath battle for Wall Street, if you like. So I I never thought of it that way. I wouldn't have done it if I thought we were going to lose. But I, I certainly understand that was the perception. Charlie Penner is a partner at Engine Number no. 1, the small hedge fund that took on Exxon's behemoth and won. And he landed his punches by making the argument that for the oil giant to even have a financial future, it needed to prepare for a world free of fossil fuels. It's just bad risk management to still continue to plan for only one narrow scenario where oil and gas demand continues to grow and the world kind of confines itself to the worst possible climate change outcomes. It's quite the contrast with the increasingly spectacular and public tactics of climate protesters. In Europe, for example, they've been bringing cities to a standstill, gluing themselves to pavements, occupying streets and blocking traffic. The trade-off is that if you're coming at things from an investor perspective, you have to be making arguments that resonate with investors. So if, if I just go into somebody's office and say, I'm really concerned about climate change. That's great. So am I. And so, you know, everybody else I talk to. End of conversation. Yeah. This is Behind the Money from the Financial Times. I'm Manuela Saragossa. In this episode, the story of how a tiny unknown hedge fund took on one of America's mightiest companies over climate change and won. It's the third in our five-part series on the rise of environmental, social and governance issues, or ESG, in the corporate and investment worlds. With the help of the FT's Moral Money team, we'll ask if activist investors like Engine Number 1 can really move the needle when it comes to weaning the world off fossil fuels. And what will investing look like if shareholders keep shaking things up this way? We'll get back to Charlie Penner in just a moment. First, just how audacious was Engine Number One's campaign to change Exxon? I've covered oil and gas for a long time and energy more broadly. And it was 
it was a shocking day for the companies that had seemed almost impermeable to the forces raging against them. Derek Brower, he leads the FT's energy coverage in the US. This small hedge fund that nobody had ever heard of went public in a fairly aggressive way with their campaign against ExxonMobil, which is just this huge, powerful, storied American corporate giant. They had this colossal global power as well and almost act like an arm of the American State Department. But actually, in many respects, it probably considered itself to be doing a better job of foreign policy than the American State Department. Company ExxonMobil and Russia's Rosneft have signed a deal to develop oil and gas reserves in the Russian Arctic. And I think Exxon is so accustomed to criticism. A study today alleging that ExxonMobil tried to systematically mislead the public about climate change for 40 years. Campaigns by activists. People rise up. The powers come down. Climate campaigners and so on. We are here to demand that Exxon stop giving millions of dollars to corporations. And it's used to getting its way. It's used to being quite dismissive almost, as some people would describe it, in the way it treats these kinds of investor complaints. Would it be fair to say Exxon had a reputation within the energy sector as being a bit of an arrogant company? I think it's fair to say that they have a reputation in the energy sector as being a bit arrogant, yeah. Meanwhile, the antagonist in this story, Charlie Penner, who was known on Wall Street as being a bit of an activist ninja, if you like. He had a reputation among big institutional investors as somebody who could get a campaign like this off the ground. In other words, Charlie had a reputation as an investor who agitates for change and impact. And what about his employer, Engine Number 1? These are hard-nosed investors at the end of the day. These aren't people who want to take ExxonMobil stock in order to sell it or to make a show of punishing Exxon for some position or other. They want Exxon to thrive as a business through the energy transition, and they want the Exxon to have a strategy to handle that. So how did engine number one do it? Rewind to December last year. The second wave of the COVID pandemic is gathering pace. This morning, coronavirus decimating American communities as the viral spread speeds faster. The US already... It's also been a terrible year for the world's energy giants, including Exxon. CNN breaking news. Oil prices have turned negative. The most... Ex- US prices of oil due for delivery next month plunged yesterday to minus $38. Then a punch lands in the form of a letter engine number one sends to Exxon's management. And what that letter's calling for is the appointment of new directors to Exxon's board. Climate change literate directors who'll force Exxon to develop a strategy for the transition to cleaner fuels. It wasn't like any of these arguments we were making were, you know, unheard of by the folks at Exxon. Charlie Penner again. One of the points that we made was whatever really happens with oil and gas demand, over the long term, you know, your, your job is not to maintain market shares to deliver value for shareholders. OK, so it's not unusual for shareholders to send private letters or perhaps have quiet backroom chats with the boards of companies they hold stock in. But Engine Number 1 went public from the word go. It sent its letter not just to Exxon's board, but also to the financial press, not quite taping themselves to the sidewalk, but pretty close when it comes to the investment world. So we thought it was important to kind of, you know, make the case publicly so they could see shareholder reaction and understand that this was serious and also not spend a lot of time, 
you know, trying to plot behind the scenes to avoid change, but to actually just, you know, engage in a substantive debate. That debate would be about the new nominees to Exxon's board. Engine number one put forward four people with years of experience between them in oil and gas. They'd helped other companies start decarbonizing. Basically, a senior management climate change SWAT team. It was really looking at the missing skill sets on the Exxon board. And I know that may sound strange to people who, who might struggle with the idea that we pulled somebody from the traditional oil and gas industry. But, you know, to make a credible case and quite frankly, to get a group of people on the board, we needed one person who we could basically say, this is somebody who understands the oil and gas industry as well as anybody else. And they get the need for change. Engine number one's letter gathered interest and fledgling support from other big investors in Exxon, including some of the world's biggest pension funds like Colsters, the California Teachers State Retirement Fund. Charlie's letter had tapped into a growing uneasy mood among big investors about Exxon's strategy in a decarbonizing world. And their support was crucial because, well, engine number one's stake in Exxon was minuscule. I mean, you know, we held barely, I don't think it even counts as a rounding error. Um, I think we have 0.02%. Support from other big Exxon shareholders meant the oil giant's board agreed to meet with Charlie and his team. Virtually, of course. It's January this year. We're still in the throes of the COVID pandemic. We spoke to the the CEO and the, and the lead independent director. And, you know, it was a really interesting conversation. It was about an hour and... We talked about why we thought it was important that people with the qualifications that our nominees have were on the board. They, you know, explained why they they didn't see it that way. And we left open the possibility of future conversations about that. They put their own candidates forward, didn't they? Yeah. So, you know, at that point, it was was really a, a, a choice for shareholders to decide. The shareholders' decision would come in the form of what's known as a proxy vote. And that vote would take place at an Exxon annual general meeting a few months later. It's May 26. Both sides are geared up for the fight. Darren Woods, Exxon CEO, goes on CNBC for his side of the stare down. Well, we've got one of the strongest boards in corporate America, one that we have been refreshing uh, fairly regularly since I came in uh, in 2017. All stuff engine number one disagreed with, of course. Would they be able to push through the change they wanted? Where were you the day of that vote? And because I know you were the first to speak at that meeting again over the internet. Again, that that even wasn't the internet, that was a phone. It it was like we got less technology advanced as the campaign went on. Um, Yeah, that was just a phone line. So I was just sitting at my desk in front of a phone by myself. And you were sitting at a desk where at home? At home, yeah. Everything was from home. I haven't been to an office in a year and a half. And, And so you were the first to speak. I mean, and what did you say? I just said, look, win or lose, Whatever happens here, we're going to keep pushing. Again, even if we're successful, you know, that's really kind of when the hard work starts because, you know, the challenges facing this company and the industry are in many ways daunting. But we're hopeful that the folks on this board can help Exxon deal with them in a long-term manner. Then, as the votes started coming in, the directors on Exxon's board called for time out. They suddenly wanted an hour-long recess. We're joined by Charlie Penner on the phone. He's the head of active engagement for Engine Number One, which is uh, the. Charlie went live on CNBC to complain. You felt victorious uh, about 45 minutes ago. What's your sense of the vote count as it stands now? And why are you upset by this delay in getting those results? 
Thanks, Leslie. We're upset because it's been a 10-week campaign in which both sides have more than ample opportunity to present their, their case to shareholders. The board has already expanded itself by adding three new directors, and it's time to let shareholders have their voice. And as a very uh, Banana Republic feel to call the meeting, put it on hold for an hour, we are aware that directors of the company are... It was a lot like Stalin. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. Eventually, the vote results did come through. Two of Engine Number no. 1's four nominees had made it onto the Exxon board. A third nominee would be added a few weeks later. Time to pop the champagne, maybe, at Charlie's place. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to get out of go mode, so it wasn't like, you know, I ran around you know, the house like pumping my fist. It was more just, okay, what's next? Okay, so no champagne then. But then, as Charlie mentions, winning that vote was just the beginning of Engine Number no. 1's scheme to transform Exxon. The hedge fund still holds Exxon shares. The story's not over. They aren't going to go away. They're going to keep watching. They want to hold Exxon's feet to the fire, if necessary. Derek Brower again. There are changes that are happening at Exxon already. Exxon is talking in a language about the energy transition that it hasn't used before. Almost all of its public releases right now are about what it's doing to decarbonize some element of the business or reduce its carbon footprint or, or something. ExxonMobil is introducing a carbon capture and storage concept so big we're pragmatists like we're and cars off the road. It's who we are. So we have a plan to help address like climate change. Carbon I think anybody who's watched Exxon closely over the years would see what's happened in the past few months since the election of the three engine number one nominees to the board as pretty significant in Exxon's history. But it is doing things that Exxon would not have been expected to do before. It is talking about building a huge carbon capture and storage business in Houston. It is now reporting its scope three emissions. Those are the emissions, the carbon emissions from the products it sells. These are things that Exxon resisted for a while. Does any of this move the needle on climate change, though? I agree that Exxon is still pumping oil and gas. We, you know, uh, never in any of our communications said we expected overnight change. But if you look at the long-term trajectory of the energy transition, decisions do matter. So in a way, you've kind of reshaped a small puzzle piece in a very, very big puzzle. And a lot of work went into doing that. And there will be people who say, it just shows that this kind of activist shareholder position is too slow when it comes to climate change. We don't have the luxury of that kind of time. If this is the only thing that ever happens, I would agree with that. Again, we certainly never advocated this as a single solution. This is part, again, of a, a number of things that have to go the right way. But I think having oil majors with boards who are more ready to embrace change rather than fighting it is an important piece of that. We asked Exxon for a response. A spokesperson said the company's new board is focused on improving Exxon's performance, addressing the challenges faced by the industry and increasing long-term shareholder value. He noted there was good alignment on the board on meeting the global demand for energy while accelerating the transition to a lower-carbon future, as well as the important role ExxonMobil will have in that transition. But for Charlie Penner, after his Exxon win... What's next? Uh, do you want the tickers or? Uh, whatever you want to tell me. I'm joking. Uh, working on a lot of stuff, not in the energy space. You know, I think the picture is bigger than that. But in terms of active engagement, you know, really focused on things where 
companies that we think we can, you know, help them kind of develop, you know, business models that are more long-term. And that's, in our opinion, how you really kind of develop change that's sustainable and can lead to broader systemic change, not just at the company that you're engaged with, but more broadly across the industry. And um, you can't give us a hint of, of the companies that you're targeting. Uh, it wouldn't be in anybody's best interest. <laughs> okay. What all this suggests is that companies that aren't already actively engaging with ESG may well find it foisted upon them by their shareholders. So there's been a huge rise in support for ESG resolutions from the US to Europe over the last couple of years as asset managers start to think about how they can use their voice. Attractor Mooney is the FT's investment correspondent. She's been covering the recent change in the way shareholders engage with the companies they're invested in. In the past, they would have tended to focus on these backroom discussions and now they're more willing to use their vote to try and drive that change. Uh, Where did you see that in particular? The data shows that they're willing to use their vote at annual meetings more than ever to push companies on ESG type issues. So you're saying investors have been raising more and more resolutions on environmental, social and governance or ESG issues at AGNs and voting those through, in other words, forcing companies to address ESG issues. But what's your takeaway then from Engine Number One's Exxon campaign? So most of the big investors would argue that the reason they are so incensed about climate change is because it's investment risk, because they are worried that they will have invested in these companies that become worthless or worthless over the next few years because they're not considering climate change sufficiently enough. Engine number one is a really interesting example because they didn't own a huge amount of the stock and yet have made probably bigger inroads at Exxon than their biggest shareholders have made in years. Um, And it does show that you can make a difference as an investor. You can make quite a big difference, even with relatively small shareholding. The thing is, as an investor, you could also just not buy shares or assets in companies that don't match your values or ethics. And that's a path engine number one could have taken. There is a cynical view out there that this was all an elaborate campaign to raise engine number one's profile as it attracts more capital to take positions in other companies in future. The FT's Derek Brower. The cynic's view of the whole thing is that engine number one was a clever hedge fund that made a splash taking on this giant of Wall Street and corporate America, made a lot of money in the process, and now will strike fear into every company that it talks to in future and probably attract a lot of investor money as it does so. What does Charlie Penner make of that allegation? You know, one thing that we've kind of focused on, again, in the element of driving systemic change, is to offer a choice. It should be for everybody to know that their shares are being voted in a way that aligns with their long-term interests and values, because that's a key component of these campaigns, is making sure that shareholders have the voice and are aware that they have it and can use it effectively. Next time, the giant US pension fund that did use its voice and tried to get a company to change its ways, but failed to land the knockout blow. So it divested. I think what made me emotional, what frustrated me, is that we didn't have an opportunity to change things. 
I've included some links to reporting by Derek Brower and Attractor Mooney in the show notes. And you can read more about ESG investing from our FT reporters and the Moral Money team at ft.com slash moral money. And as a listener to FT Podcasts, why not sign up for a 30-day free subscription to the FT's premium Moral Money newsletter? It includes complimentary access to ft.com for the same period. Head to ft.com slash inside ESG to sign up. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladesui with additional support from Alice Fordham and Josh gabbert Doyon. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. We have editorial direction from Rene Kaplan and our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. I'm Manuela Saragossa. Join me next time. This podcast is supported by Morgan Stanley, whose Thoughts on the Market podcast brings you concise takes on the markets and the events that are moving them. It's like a personal briefing with Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief investment officer and his colleagues. Backed by the Morgan Stanley Research Team, they share insights and perspectives on current events and what these events could mean for markets and the world economy. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Search for Thoughts on the Market in your podcast app.